I wrote an essay years ago called Sweet Prime Focus. And the idea was focusing is so important for communication, for being effective at anything. And now meditation is a really popular way to try to improve our focus. I think that that's starting at step three, though. Because meditation is yes, it's okay. really hard to focus if we haven't swept and primed, and so before any big event, I think it's important to sweep and prime, and then you're naturally ready to focus. And so breathing techniques and vocal exercises, warming up our voice, warming up our bodies, warming up our lungs, warming up our brains and minds, are ways to prime ourselves to be ready. Freedom of. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. Hey folks, it's Nico Perino here. Welcome back. I'm excited to bring you today's conversation with Bob Ewing. Bob is the founder and president of the Ewing School, which conducts speaker trainings for executives and wonkish types including for myself and my colleagues here at FIRE. Bob used to be the Director of Communications for the Institute for Justice and the Director of Communications Training for the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. As you'll hear during the course of our conversation today, Bob's thinking about how to develop winning messages for the court of public opinion has had a huge impact on my thinking over the years and, consequently, how FIRE builds its communications campaigns around free speech issues and controversies. During the course of this conversation, we share some war stories, of course, but we also lay out a broader framework for how to effectively advocate for free speech. We discuss how you should think about your audience, your message, your delivery, and even some breathing exercises you can use before speaking publicly. It was a joy to welcome Bob to FIRE's DC office for this chat, and I, and I really do hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Now, on to the show. We should prime ourselves before important events. So what is the sweep then? Is that... Sweeping Sweeping is just getting all the shit out of your head, right? Because we have so much shit that's running around in our head constantly. It's not looking at Twitter before you... It's not looking at Twitter. No. (laughs) So are you familiar with Getting Things Done by David Allen? Mm Mm-mm. So David Allen was this super guru back in the 90s in particular, and he's still around, but he created a system called Getting Things Done, or GTD, which is this super productivity system. It's awesome. The very first component of that system is is sweep, is sweep your mind. And he created what he called a trigger list that you would go through, read all of these different things that will spur ideas in your head. But basically, we have tons of shit in our head, all these different ideas, and they're floating around. And we just leave them there. And so what he says is, is you have to pull those out because our minds for having ideas, not holding them. And so it's hard to focus your mind with all this clutter. But how do you do that? It's easier said than done, right? Like when I think about clearing my mind, I then get anxiety about having to clear my mind. Totally. The two ways. It's that like I when d- you think about trying to, you, uh, trying to fall asleep is when you have a hard time falling asleep. Yes, 100%. The, the two ways that I do it is one, I use the app Otter, which is just a free app you, you can put on your phone. And I just talk into it and you just talk it out. Right. And oh, you, interesting. And you literally just, just exhale. Right. A lot of therapy is just helping people to exhale. Right. The, the best coaching book, the most popular coaching book right now, The Coaching Habit, he says the first two questions you should ask people you're coaching are what's on your mind and what else? And it's that and what else question that really pulls shit out of your head. And once you pull the shit out of your head, then you then you then you feel more liberatedly. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I ask s- some of my colleagues who are having trouble writing to do is to just write. 
right? Yes. Because sometimes you have so much anxiety about putting the perfect word on the page. And sometimes the way, the, the way to do that is to talk into something, just yes. like t turn on voice dictation in a Google Doc and talk about the thing you want to write about. And then you actually have some words on a page that you can respond to and refine and figure out what's missing or totally. what's there. And maybe you do it on two or three occasions. Maybe you get out of the shower after thinking about it and just word vomit into your Google Doc. And then later you can come in and sit down and say, okay, what, what is actually vomit and what is gold? Yeah. And refine it. In, in Bird by Bird, famous book on writing, she says, write shitty first drafts. Yeah. And the best way to write a shitty first draft is just to talk it out. And for speaking, it's even more important because speaking isn't writing. All right? Dan Gilbert, the Harvard psychologist, says, if you're going to speak, your first draft should be spoken, not written. Because then you have to try to perform this alchemy, he calls it, that fails, where you try to convert the writing to speaking. And we encourage all of our clients to do, write their first drafts on speeches to write them orally. And oh, interesting. What, yeah, and Greg does that already. Oh, does he really? Yeah, yeah. well, Greg does a lot uh, to voice dictation. <laughs> he is a big advocate for voice dictation. So yeah. I, I generally don't do that. But I try and use that as a tool to break through writer's block when I'm having a hard time getting words on the page or totally. first draft. I just need to get out of my own way and just say what I'm thinking into voice dictation. It puts the words on the page for me yeah. and then see what I've got, right? It's awesome. So that's sweeping, right? So you're trying yeah. to sweep your mind. And then priming, we were talking earlier before we were rolling about there's there's ba 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 and then you were talking about something really you know and then it was breathing yeah so what what were those two totally goals? and so priming is just putting your mind into the correct mental state that you want it to be in right and and i'll say quickly to tie up the, the sweeping the most common way to sweep is to take pieces of paper like little individual pieces of paper and just each idea you have in your head gets its own individual piece of paper and that's the most, that's tried and true gold standard way to sweep. And so I try to do that once a week. That's like gold standard recommended. Sometimes I'll even do blue paper and green paper. And blue paper will be anything that it, it is causing you anxiety. And the, blue, and the green paper will be anything that's getting you excited. Right? And you get all that shit out of your head. So you don't do anything with those pieces of paper after you you've done it? The very fact that you do it is transformational to how you feel inside. Oh, interesting. Now, if you want to keep going, then you could go into the whole GTD philosophy. And he says, once you've swept, it's not only getting shit out of your head, but it's getting shit out of your inbox. It's getting shit out of your voicemails. It's getting shit out of your mailboxes. You have all these different inboxes. And so you, and so you gather all that stuff together, and then you figure out where to put it. But it shouldn't be in your head. You want to have a second brain where you store everything. Priming is putting your mind into the correct state so you're ready to optimize whatever you're going to do so football players will get together and get all excited i there's something i i sometimes do and i was actually at mercatus yesterday we we're doing a, a workshop and i was teaching these guys something i call the eddie jane which is eddie jane was this guy I wrestled all through school and in ohio eddie jane was like the most badass wrestler when i was when i was there and i saw him i got to see him wrestle a couple of times i never wrestled him because i was tinier than him but he he would get up before the match he would stare at the person across the way and he would start jumping around. He would be slapping his legs, slapping his, yeah. slapping his arms, slapping his face, looking at you. And then the match would start and he'd run out and murder you. And then yeah. back. Right? We used to do that. I ran track in high school and college and I would just like pound my legs and pound my back. I don't, I didn't really have a reason for doing it. 
other than I saw other people who were really good at track doing it. Does, yes. The idea being that you're kind of like priming your muscles you're or something. You're getting yourself excited. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You could say you're getting your muscles warmed up in when we're going on stage, right? But it could also be placebo. Maybe it's not doing anything to your muscles, but it's a sense that like you're getting yourself ready for the, the beauty thing. of placebo is that it works even when you know it's a placebo. Yeah. Everyone should take a pill every morning that does nothing other than tell you it's a placebo that will make your day better. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so there's a whole bunch of ways we can prime our mind and, and prime our bodies, right? And then prime our voice. So like if you take voice lessons or if you're a singer or if you go on stage and you're a high-powered executive, you're going to have people that will help you with your voice. So we encourage our clients to warm up their voice before they go out and do an important presentation. And how do you recommend they do that? So lips and tongue are both important. So these are weird exercises you normally wouldn't do. On camera, but <laughs> We're going to do them, actually. Let's we, do them. We could do them. Okay, so so one would be it, um, ba, right? So ba, 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 ba. Super classic. And then, and then there's the intense version of that, which would just be like that, yeah. right? So, <laughs> yes, right, the motorboat. <laughs> someone's going to someone's gonna clip that and make it a meme of Nico. <laughs> <laughs> and then you do the same thing with your tongue. So it would be la, 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 la. Yeah. La, 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 la. And then la. trill. I don't know that I can do that. <laughs> Crushed it, dude. Speaking is your whole body, right? And so I encourage folks to do some type of an Eddie Jane thing. I encourage folks to go to the bathroom before a big moment. Before they go on stage, right? Three reasons to go to the bathroom. One, because you don't want to be squirming around halfway through being uh-huh. on stage, right? Second one is you want to look yourself in the mirror. And do I have anything stuck in my teeth? Is, That's is, true, is yeah. all my shit together, right? And then third is one last prime, right? Look yourself in the mirror and say, I'm going to fucking crush it. And the fourth is you might have to go. <laughs> well, that, that, that's the first thing is actually go to the yeah, bathroom. Yeah, actually right? go to yes. the bathroom. Yes. Yeah. But you were saying there were some breathing techniques that are aside from kind of the vocal. There's a whole crying. bunch of breathing techniques that are awesome. Yeah. So that's physiological sighing. That's absolute gold standard. Well, now that we've primed, I think. Let's do it. <laughs> I, you've been mentioning your company, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is Ewing School. Yeah. Uh, you're Bob Ewing, of course. Yes, sir. So you're the founder and I'm assuming president. Do I'm you have the, that I, title? Yes, sir. I'm the founder and president, and Mary Rose is the CEO. Okay. So you and I go fairly far back. When I first started at FIRE, I was Greg Lukianoff, who you work with on speaking speaker training and his speeches and whatnot. Yeah. Um, he's the president and CEO of FIRE. Uh, I was his assistant, and FIRE was like a 12, 13, 14-person organization at the time. and. Yeah, and he and I were working on his book when I first came along, his first book called Unlearning Liberty. And I had some experience doing advertising and marketing at Indiana University. That's what that's what I thought I was going to go into before I ended up coming to FIRE. And so when that book came out, I helped him with the comms for it because, believe it or not, in 2012 when I started at FIRE, we didn't really have a communications shop. We had a public awareness program on which many people worked, but nobody doing like core communications work. Nobody really. So what took you to FIRE? I was an internet fire in 2010 what, because I've why always did been you say inter- I want to internet fire. Well, I've, I had always been interested in issues of political philosophy and the constitution. Uh, I, I'm sorry to say that I learned about Luke Skywalker and that's the, <laughs> the principal and two live crew here who's for our radio or podcast listeners. Uh, they can't see. I've got a poster of Luke Skywalker on my wall because his album and one of his uh, albums, I think nasty as you want to be was, deemed obscene in the state of Florida and uh, you know actually there were people who distributed the album who were charged with 
crimes for for selling it. Um, and so he became kind of a First Amendment advocate. And he came out with later a, a song or an album called Banned in the USA. And so I've got that poster on my wall uh, with a picture of him Dude, with his I hand in that. his pants. That's a great. <laughs> the other side is actually him flicking off. Yes. Uh, whoever's looking at it. So uh, when you I remember for- this album. My brother had it when I was a kid. And it was like, for, it was like, anyone who doesn't like the First Amendment, I have a picture for you. And you open it up and he's like, Yeah, he's flicking it off. You. But he became like a big advocate. And this for- is... Luke Skywalker from Two Life Crew, not Luke Skywalker from Star Wars. Yeah, he spells it a little bit differently, and I don't know if it's a play on Luke Skywalker from Star Wars, but I think there's like two R's at the end of it or something. I don't know. But uh, he became kind of a First Amendment hero because he ended up winning that case over um, um, involving obscenity and became an advocate for free expression more broadly. And Killer Mike actually, in his speech at Fires Gala earlier this month, um, talked about Luke Skywalker and um, and Two Life Crew and kind of what and, and is his name actually Luke Skywalker? Is it um, Luther Campbell? I think it's is his Luther name. Campbell. Yeah. yeah, but I think he went by Luke Skywalker or something like that. And Uncle Luke. Yeah, and I guess he does some really good work. I think he's based in Miami. Um, Killer Mike was telling me that he does some really good work for the community. Um, so anyway, no, that's not why I came to fire. <laughs> but I had always been interested in issues of free expression in the Constitution, and we had a question uh, come up with one of the student groups I was involved in involving student fees and funding, like the funding that our group, student group can get to bring a speaker to campus. And we didn't know what our rights were or what you know, really was required of the university. So it just so happened that Fired had recently distributed their guide to student rights on campus to our student group. And one of those four or five guides was the guide to student fees and funding. Uh, Fired still does this student groups that we work with. Um, we try and distribute these guides so that they know what their rights are on campus. And on the back of the guide is of course the URL to the website, which I went to. And it just so happens out of coincidence that at the time I went to it, Fire was advertising its internship program. I applied, I ended up getting it. I ended up moving to Philadelphia. The rest, as they say, is history. And you know, that was t- 2009, 10 when I applied, uh, 2010 when I was an intern. And it's what, you know, 13, 14 years later. I'm still here, uh, all because Fire just so happened to be advertising its internship <laughs> program when I went there. But anyway, then I came aboard in 2012 as a full-time employee, as Greg's assistant. And after doing the book, Greg recognized the opportunity to have a communications department at Fire. And he said, oh, you did great work on Unlearning Liberty. Why don't you transition out of being my assistant and be our first communications staffer? And so I was a communications coordinator. And I had no idea how to do any of this work. Like I went to journalism school. I studied a little bit of advertising marketing. I had a knack of just for just like getting things in front of people, but I had no philosophy. I had no idea how to put together a pitch to a journalist. I had no idea how to win in the court of public opinion, more or less. So what I did, and I think what um, any person who's actually interested in learning the space would do, is I reached out to people who did do this stuff in a way that I admired. So I reached out to the Drug Policy Alliance, for example, and took a train up to Manhattan and met with them and said, you know, how do you do communications work? And I also reached out to you and your colleague at the time, you were working at the Institute for Justice, Mark Maranta, and I'll never forget it. I mean, it was one of the more life-changing things that ever happened to me. We sat, we went out for lunch. We sat at an outside table. I forget what the name of the place um, was, and you brought out a presentation that you had clearly given before and just walked me through the process of doing communications work at the Institute for Justice and not just the tactical and 
uh, approach to it, but also like the broader philosophy behind why you did things tactically. And so I took a lot of the learning back from that conversation and tried to implement it here at FIRE and to, I hope, good effect. But over the years, uh, we've remained in touch. You've given me advice in many other contexts as well, including <laughs> recommending when I first got into the uh, workforce that I should put as much money as I can into my 401k or in nonprofit world's 403b uh, because one day I might have kids and I might not have as much disposable income. So you get it there now and you work with the compounding interest. So it's a pleasure now that you've started the Ewing School that you work with FIRE staff on developing their speaking skills and refining their speeches and doing media trainings. And so the purpose of this conversation is, one, not only to thank you for effectively getting FIRE's communications department up and running without really knowing it, but two, to kind of bring some of the lessons learned yeah. over the last you know, 20 years of your career or whatever yeah. and, and talk with our audiences about what makes them effective speakers, but more um, precisely, what would make them an effective advocate for free expression in the court of public opinion? So, you know, I want to get started and talk about audience. Um, I know that's a big message for you is you need to have an idea of who your audience is when you're preparing to go into the court of public opinion, right? Yes. And, and so how do you work with your clients to do that, to help identify the audience um, so that you're you're not just talking to the masses, uh, so to speak. Absolutely, yeah. It's an excellent point. And I would say at the highest level, communication is about connection. And what we want to do is we want to connect with our audience. We want to connect our message with our audience. And ideally, we want the better we can understand our audience, the more effectively we can connect. And we want to make sure we're not doing things that disconnect us from our audience. And so when we work with all of our clients, we always say, first and foremost, who is your audience? What are they interested in and how can you help them? Right? And that's, that's where you start, whether it's a big presentation like Greg and Will just did at, the or gala. It, at your fire gala or whether it's a conversation that you're having in line at the grocery store. Right? Who's the audience? What are they interested in? How can you help them? Yeah. That's the starting point for effective communication. One of the challenges that I have, not necessarily within the communications department, but working with the other programs that we have here at Fire here, and I'll put this down here. This this is another book you recommended to me, <laughs> yeah, Made to Stick, which is now one. have become the the sort of comms bible within the communications department, so to speak. But this you can put good. your coffee on that, so it's not clinking. Um, one of the challenges I have working with people out of communications, they have a program, right? Or they have a case, or they have a report, um, or they have something that they're trying to get out. Working with them to identify an audience is hard because your instinct is, I want everyone to know about this, right? Uh, I, because you think it's important. Because this is something you've worked long and hard about and you think people should care about it. But that's not always the best approach to messaging, for example, FIRE's internship program or for this particular case or, or this particular survey. For example, we just did a survey of um, community scholars or not community, college scholars uh, and the amount of times that they've been uh, punished for what would be First Amendment protected speech um, related to their academic work. So we're sitting down, we're talking about it. You know, is the audience for that report the all Americans, 
right? Because we're all in America and these scholars are in America and we think that all of them should care about the scholars or should it be something more narrow? And I think for folks who don't work in the communication department, the answer is always everyone should care about this because I care about it, right? Do you do you have that problem when you're working with clients? I'll tell you a quick story that that brings to life is back when I worked at the Institute for Justice, there was a new attorney that started named Arif. Mm-hmm. Did you work with Arif? Yeah, I worked with Arif. Arif's awesome, yeah. right? And so Arif had just started, and he said, I want to pitch an op-ed to the Austin American Statesman. He was living down in Texas. And I said, dude, there's no reason to pitch an op-ed to the Austin American Statesman because they're not going to run it because they don't respond to my emails, <laughs> right? And so they're an amazing paper. They're the paper of record in the Capitol in Texas, but they do not respond to my emails. It's a black box. You cannot get into the Austin American Statesman. And he said, well, I think that I, I still want to do that. And I said, but it doesn't make sense. He said, well, let me send you over the op-ed, the idea I have in mind, and you take it and read it. So I start reading this totally skeptical. And by the time I finished, I was like, holy shit, dude. I think this might work, right? And and what he wrote was he wrote a piece that said, Austin, you guys have the best food truck regulations in the state, and the rest of Texas needs to be more like Austin, Hmm. right? Uh, San Antonio just passed some bad regulations in particular, so this timely hook. I was like, oh, my God. I sent it to the Austin American Statesman, and they write me right back. And they say, they say, we love it. We're, we're in, right? And he's written a whole bunch of pieces for the Austin American Statesman now. And it was sort of like, of course, right? Like I'd been sending pieces to the Statesman that were saying things like, Austin, you have bad regulations. You need to be more like someone else. And it was not audience focused. Yeah. Right? And I remember that's one of the points that you made to me during that first meeting, which was you need to bait the hook to sweep the fish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that might be an old... Uh, proverb, so to speak, an old proverb. Uh, that you don't use anymore. But the, the, the idea is you're not going to send a pitch, a story pitch to National Review in the same way you're going to do it to Mother Jones, right? They have two different editorial perspectives, two different audiences, two different sets of, of interests. Um, so you need to tailor your pitches to the audiences you're trying to reach. And in the case of the Austin American Statesman, you're saying, not only are you giving them props because their city of Austin is doing something well, um, but you're comparing it to other things that are happening in the state that's within the readership as well. Um, one of the the cases that I like to reflect back on, because I also worked at the Institute for Justice for a time, was our civil asset forfeiture case uh, involving Philadelphia civil asset forfeiture program, which was among the most corrupt and abusive in, in the entire country. And one of the hardest places to get your story to run is on cable television. Television just in general. They run three stories a day and you know, civil asset forfeiture often isn't one of them, right? Uh, but we thought, well, if we could identify a host or a producer who has a connection to Philadelphia and might be uniquely interested in what's happening there, maybe we might have a chance. And so we did some research. We found out that Jake Tapper is from Philadelphia. You go to his Twitter account, he's talking about things that are happening in Philadelphia. Of course, he's a popular host over at CNN. So we pitched him. And lo and behold, it worked. He decided he would take it as an exclusive and they ended up running the story. He didn't end up, he ended up introing the story, but it was ran by one of his segment producers who does uh, legal stuff. But you know, you need to, act, it, it's more work, but you need to figure out how you can make your, reson, uh, your message resonate with 
a particular audience if you do want it to resonate with that audience. Totally. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what the context is, right? We, one of our clients argued a case on Wednesday before the Supreme Court. That's a very high pressure, high stakes environment. You have an audience of nine. There's nine people and they come from a diverse variety of backgrounds and different ideological beliefs, right? And so the idea here, this was Christina Martin, who was um, arguing Tyler Hinneman County, the case that from the Pacific Legal Foundation that's on, um, it's a property rights case that has to do with home equity theft. But the point was when she's preparing, she's not just thinking, okay, home equity theft, what do I think about it? It's what do I think about it in the context of these nine people that I'm interacting with, right? And what's every conceivable question I can get from each of these nine people? How will they approach the case? What specifically will they be interested in? And how can I help them to see it in a way that makes the most sense from my perspective? And I want to set the terms of debate in a way that makes the most sense for me, understanding the world through each of their eyes. Yeah, and sometimes it's even narrower than the nine justices, right? Sometimes you know as an advocate in front of the Supreme Court who the justices are who are probably already are on your side. And sometimes you're going up there and making your argument to one justice who's going to be the swing justice, who's the yep. one justice yeah. you need to convince. I mean, you're not ignoring the other justices, but your your top line talking point, your top line message is really to appeal to um, this maybe originalist justice who uh, is skeptical of your of your arguments, um, but you really need them in order to win, to get that f- that fifth vote. Totally, right? And if you're speaking to students on a college campus, it's going to be different than if you're, say, keynoting at the Fire Gala. Oh, totally, yeah. I mean, so we have some of that issue right now at Fire, right? Since we expanded our mission in June of last year, we recognize that a lot of people who have been Fire subscribers to our email accounts or social media stuff, they're going to start getting a lot of stuff that isn't on college campuses anymore, right? Um, Or, alternatively, We have people that are coming in because they're excited about FIRE's new mission, expanding our free speech advocacy off campus. And at least at the outset, this was a conversation we had. It's like all of our programming is still about campus because we haven't revved up the off-campus programming yet. So we're bringing all these people in and they're just seeing campus stuff, but maybe that's not what they're interested in. Mm -hmm. So we needed to be very deliberate and thoughtful on how we mixed up content, how we introduced new off-campus content to our on-campus advocates and supporters and that's hard it takes a lot more work it's a lot it's a lot easier to just kind of follow inertia and just blast your message out you know totally you know without any sort of thought or strategy behind it totally there's a there's a great quote from the tech writer ken hammer that says giving a speech without an audience in mind is like writing a love letter and addressing it to whom it may concern you put that in your sub. <laughs> you put that in your Substack. So, what's your Substack again, by the way? It's called Talking Big Ideas. Talking Big Ideas. I recommend it to everyone. Um, <laughs> I, I I've probably emailed our staff three or four times saying everyone needs to get this or forwarded one of your messages from that. And you did have a Substack letter, um, Substack newsletter, uh, a couple of weeks ago where you had that quote. Speaking yeah. without an audience in mind is like writing a letter to a love letter to whom it may concern. It's just brilliant. I've I've used it like twenty times since I read that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's exactly right. You, you can understand intuitively writing a love letter to no one in particular is not going to be an effective love letter, right? But we don't think about it in the same way when we're doing public interest litigation or advocating the court of public opinion for these for constitutional rights. You just yeah. don't always do that. Um, and, and the important thing, too, is that 
we're still true to ourselves. It's not that we're saying I have to change who I am to appeal to different audiences. It's how can I best connect who I am to these different audiences? And here, here's a quick example of that. Years ago, I went to a VIP dinner at the Willard Hotel here in D.C., yeah. right? And that's like a bunch of presidents have lived in that hotel. Uh, it's a VIP hotel, lots of senators, politicians. Right across the street there. from the White House. Yes. And so I'm on the second floor. We're in this dinner. There's just 12 of us sitting around one table, closed door. There's two people at the table that are current U.S. senators. There's heads of commissions. There's some researchers. I'm there to facilitate conversation. The guy to my right was a guy named Adam Thier. You, you may know him. He works at R Street. He was at Mercatus at the time, and he'd done research for about 20, 25 years on tech policy issues. And he wasn't saying anything. And I thought maybe he was really scared because there was these high-status people at the table. Halfway through the dinner, he still hadn't said a word. And I thought, oh, maybe do I try to get him the ball or he's too scared? And then at some point, he ends up getting the conversational ball to land in his lap. And he absolutely knocks it out of the park. So he gets a follow-up question, crushes it. The rest of the dinner was the Adam Thier show. Yeah, The center of gravity had shifted. The the center of gravity had totally shifted to him. So when the dinner was over, normally people gather around the highest status person, one of the senators. Everyone gathered around Adam. He had become the highest status person in the room, right? And afterwards I asked him, I said, how the hell did you do that? And he said, said, I've been doing research on a whole bunch of different kinds of issues for like the last 20-some years. And so, and he always takes the best stories and proverbs and analogies from from his different research, and says, and "I'm going to save these and hold on to them." And he actually prints them out and keeps them in a binder, which is intense. But he stores them in the cloud as well, and that's what we encourage all of our clients to do: is capture all of the different stuff that you're saying, clarify it into. We like to say communications fundamentally connection, and then you have. Audience, messaging, and delivery, right? And we can talk about that. But the messaging is to capture your messaging and clarify it over time. It's a long-term game. Once you have that that storytelling catalog, if you will, saved in the cloud, then when you're going over to an event like Adam was, he says, I was just riding the lift right over to that event, and I pulled up my catalog, and I flipped through it, and I thought, what of my ideas will resonate most with this audience? Right. And, oh, they're going to like this analogy. They're going to like this story. They're going to like this shit. Right. And then when he's there, he's got all of this shit ready. So he's not just babbling at them, but he has his ideas that he's clarified and he picks the correct ones for that audience and they love it. Right. It's like starting off every conversation on third base. Yeah. I I love that story, which I've heard you tell before. And I was listening to a podcast with uh, Matthew Weiner, who is the creator and writer for Mad Men. And the host had asked him how he found his ideas for the show um, or any, anything that he works on. And he says, I keep a catalog of ideas. Essentially, when a very human moment happens in my life, whether it's something as simple as uh, you know, his kid kicking a soccer ball for the first time or the way he felt after a loved one died, he just writes a sentence about that happening. And I thought that was such a wonderful way to introduce real life into storytelling. Um, But it's something that a lot of us don't do because when you're sitting at the page, uh, sitting in front of the the blank page, you have a hard time recollecting all that stuff. So one of the like superpowers that you can do is being organized with what works, what, you know, what's happened to you, what are the stories that you told that were most resonant and for what audiences. And so there's, it's not 
the same thing that he's doing, but it's collecting things from your past that you can use again in different contexts. Yes. And authenticity trumps profundity. We often think that we have to have these crazy ass stories to end up connecting with our audience. And that's absolutely not true. We just have to speak in an authentic way. And when you capture those little stories from your life, it helps to bring them to life and connect with our audience. It's, it's a fantastic exercise. Yeah. And you just give your characters that you've already created, you know, more connection with their average person. Because if you had that experience in your life, there's chances are millions of others has had it a well as well. And so they'd be able to connect on it. The last thing on the audience point, um, just because it's something we experienced this week, um, some of our listeners might be familiar with the story. Um, Disney is suing uh, the state of Florida, the DeSantis administration, because um, the state had taken away some of its its privileges, tax, and otherwise that had previously been granted on them. And it's very clear because they opposed um, uh, the DeSantis administration's parental rights and education bill, often referred to as the don't say gay bill. And um, Republicans in the state were very upset about that. And so as a result of that, say, we're going to do something and, you know, you're going to kind of regret that you opposed us on this. Um, and so FIRE came out and said, yeah, this is a serious First Amendment issue. This is First Amendment retaliation. You, you know, Disney doesn't have the right to this privilege, but it's also unconstitutional to revoke it for an unconstitutional reason, which is political advocacy. Um, and we drew a, and in writing our statement for that and in creating our message around that, we understood that the audience that we're trying to reach were conservatives who might be sympathetic to the DeSantis administration, might be sympathetic to um, the underlying bill, the uh, parental rights and education bill. And so we needed to explain to them that the same tools that you might give a pass to the DeSantis administration for using the state of Florida can be used by others who you might be more inclined to agree with yeah. uh, or to be used by other politicians in states that you disagree with, for example, in the state of New York. And we, so we drew the analogy in the state of New York, um, they're using financial regulations to try and blacklist the NRA so it can't get – uh, it can't do business in the state. Essentially, it can't get insurance. It can't uh, have any banking so- operations set up in New York State, all because of its advocacy around gun rights issues. So saying, you know, if you give DeSantis a pass in Florida, that that also means that you're giving a pass to the state of New York and going after the NRA. So, <laughs> you know, we could have just gone after the DeSantis administration or the state of Florida, um, but then we wouldn't have been able to demonstrate we wouldn't have really reached conservatives without showing that well, this is the cost of letting this go too. Yeah. Uh, we did the same thing in South Carolina and North Carolina surrounding abortion where in South Carolina they were trying to criminalize some speech relating to abortion. Not abortion itself, just speech about abortions. Um, and so we came out as advocates against that and were effective in defeating that bill. But then at the same time in the state of North Carolina, a student government at UNC Chapel Hill was trying to um, – deny funding to any group that advocates uh, a pro-life position, more or less. Mm -hmm. And so we said, look, you know, this goes both ways. You got to be able to speak. You got to have the free, if you want the freedom to speak about abortion, you need to protect the freedom for others to express a pro-life message. Um, And I think that's one of the more effective ways in just advocating for free speech more generally to make people understand that it's your ox that can be gored the next time. What's good for the goose is what's good for the gander. Yep. And one thing I would add to that too is Mary Rose and I were with my mom last week in Tuscany, which was absolutely gorgeous vacation. And a lot of people didn't speak English, right? And it really drove home this idea that 
in different places people speak different languages. And it made me think about Arnold Kling's book, The Three Languages of Politics, and just how important that is. Are you familiar with Three Languages? Okay, 100% recommend picking it up. You should say the name again? You should have him on. Arnold Kling, The Three Languages of Politics. Absolutely fantastic book. And what he says is, like, you're familiar with John Haidt's ideas in the righteous mind where he says there are these six different moral bubbles that we live in and we all give different weights to them and and cling takes that a little bit further and says and says really what we have right now in the united states at this time in this context we have three and now he's even updated it to say probably four different languages that we're speaking when it comes to politics and ideology and he says if you're speaking your language to someone who speaks a different language, it's not going to be effective, right? And so we need to learn how to speak the language of the people that we're talking to and be audience-focused. The four different languages that he identifies are progressivism, conservatism, libertarianism, and now populism. And he says they operate on different axes and, and they talk in different ways. And he'll go through and say, okay, here's Black Lives Matter from each of these different languages. And you see that he's like, oh my God, yeah, right? And you could do this now for COVID or you could do it for the DeSantis Disney thing, yeah. right? And say, okay, I want to put this in each of these different contexts, right? So he says progressives are fundamentally operating on an access of oppressed to oppressor. Mm-hmm. And that's the context through which they're seeing the world and how they're how they're understanding and talking about <clears throat> that issue or yeah. whatever it may be. And then conservatives have civilization to barbarism. Libertarians, of course, have liberty to tyranny. And then now the rise of populism there's this nationalism to globalism, mm-hmm. right? And so he says, if we want to effectively connect with people, address the love letter, so to speak, right, to the audience that you're talking to. And so if you're talking to a conservative audience, frame what you're saying in a civilization to barbarism perspective rather than maybe a libertarian or progressive perspective. That's really smart. You know, because Jonathan Haidt does talk about that sort of issue in the in the righteous mind, and you needed people to appeal to people's moral intuitions or instincts, and um, yeah, yeah. And another huge thing here is the difference between system one and system two thinking, right? Dan Kahneman's iconic book. Yeah, you might need to break that down. So, Dan Kahneman, famous writer, thinker, the first non-economist to win the Nobel Prize in economics, he wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, and he wrote Noise, which are fantastic books that, that we should read and understand. And in Thinking Fast and Slow, he says, fundamentally, we we have a, a system one type of thinking and a system two type of thinking. System one thinking is quick and responsive and intuitive. And we need this all the time, right? The tiger jumps out at us and we run away. Or something happens, we need to very quickly make a response. We need to quickly respond. And then we have this other type of thinking, which is very slow and deliberative. He calls the slow one system two. Most of the time, Haidt says in The Righteous Mind, his first principle of social psychology is intuitions come first and reasoning follows. He says we make a quick system one judgment of the world, and then we use our system two thinking to justify our intuitions. So we use the deliberate to justify the intuitive. And there's a lot of truth to that, but we're not confined to only using our slow deliberative brain to justify our intuitions. We can break free of that. And as Arnold Kling says, we don't have to have our system two brain be a lawyer that's justifying our actions. We can have it be a judge that's honestly trying to seek the truth, 
right and that <laughs> is there something coming in I, no i think someone's uh i think my colleague on the other side of the wall is nailing something into the wall <laughs> uh, hopefully it's a it's just one nail but we'll but so the, the idea is is that we can understanding that most of the time when we're interacting with people ourselves included we're engaged in very quick system one thinking right and what's important in we're making judgments snap judgments and intuitions and they're biased based on the language that we speak yeah and that we can overcome that and and be slow and deliberative and say i'm going to move into a system two framework where i'm going to be trying to honestly understand the truth rather than just justify my own intuition i mean easier said than done though right yes well but in this gets to a design problem right um we can design the way the context that we're interacting with people in a way that pushes us into system two thinking. Is that that's kind of like, you know, this is the follow up book to the the righteous mind, which was the coddling of the American mind. It was it's not the same subject necessarily, but there is some connection, right? Because they talk in the coddling of the American mind, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, our president, about cognitive behavioral therapy, which is I think a way of not reasoning toward uh, coming up with like uh, reasoning towards your, your initial instinct, but it's like, let's judge it accurately by giving it a label of how we distort our thinking sometimes and distort our analysis. The idea being like, you know, okay, I responded this way to this situation, but then you come back, you, you take out your pen and paper and you, you write out your thoughts about it and you're like, oh, this is catastrophizing or this is black and white thinking. So is my initial a- analysis of the situation really a catastrophe or is this just me my mind playing tricks on me totally in cbt is a way to prime our minds to engage in more system two thinking yeah so i want to move away now um from audience so you have your audience in mind yeah. right but then you need to identify what your message is yeah. right which is the hard the hard thing to do and you advocate for finding your your big idea yes and how do you do that that's hard yeah <laughs> Right. Uh, Richard Feynman said that anyone could explain something complex in a complex way or explain something simple in a complex way. But to explain something complex in a simple way, that's hard. To distill it down to its essence. Yes. To make it as simple as possible, but not simpler. And so we always encourage all of our clients to think about. So again, messaging, delivery, audience. These are the three buckets that we want to be thinking about because what we say matters. And the effectiveness of our ability to to communicate is going to determine in large part the effectiveness of whatever it is that we're working on. And so the more we can break it down into who's the audience and then what specifically is the message that I want to get to them and then how can I deliver that in an effective way, that will largely determine how successful we are. Messaging I would break down into content and structure. So for content, we always recommend everyone to say, okay, whatever you're talking about, what's the big idea? And then how do you bring it to life? And we always encourage three different things. We call them proverb stories and analogies. Mm -hmm. So the proverb would be, what's the one thing that you want to stick in everyone's head? So when you're done talking, it's there. Yeah. I remember when uh, I was at IJ, and I think this is something you, you discussed in our initial meeting as well. Uh, you would talk about what is the theme. My colleague is still hanging stuff in the room. Can you let Bob know, Tyler, that we're uh, recording a podcast? Um, you you would talk about the theme. What is the one thing you want the audience to come away with? 
Um, and then you would build talking points or when we were at the Institute for Justice, SACO, Strategic Overriding Communications Objectives, Which is in support of that theme. Yeah. And the theme was often just the distillation of everything you were trying to communicate. What is that one core message? And it could be simple as, it's just a box, yeah. right? Do you want to tell that story? Sure, yeah. So that's uh, Jeff Rose. The Institute for Justice filed several cases in different courts, in different jurisdictions, going after a particular occupational licensing law. And in this case in particular that we're talking about, the it had to do with caskets being shipped across state lines, and it got into technical legal stuff, right? Law gets complicated, economics gets complicated, and yet... As with anything, if we put enough effort in, we can find a way to explain complex things in a simple way. And and what we came up with in that case was a, a proverb that was no more than four letters long, or or no more than four words long, and none of the letters were, or none of the words had more than four letters. And then which was it's just a box, right? These caskets are just a box. And then this simple proverbs, if you will, that we connected to that. There is no reason to require a license to sell what is just a box. The only reason this licensing law is on the books is to protect the financial interests of the powerful funeral lobby. Mm-hmm. And our your clients, clients were monks, right? It's just, <laughs> yeah. Our clients at the St. Joseph Abbey are prepared to go all the way to the Supreme Court if that's what it takes to vindicate the right to earn an honest living for Americans everywhere, right? And that it's just a box theme showed up in everything in op-eds and conversations, in donor meetings, in before court arguments, testifying, whatever it may be, that that big idea gets translated. Yeah, and so you're talking about all these complex economic regulations, policing how caskets are made in the state of Louisiana, I believe, right? In that case, yes. Yes, in the state of Louisiana. You say you, you don't really need to understand all these complex economic reg- regulations. If you just understand that it's just a box. It's just a box. And you don't need all that BS and all that red tape. <laughs> to create a box. Yes. Right? Watch really good speakers speak and this happens. This goes back to probably thousands of years, but Bork Cochran hammered this home. He was perhaps the most influential speaking coach of the 20th century um, for elites. And then I would say Dale Carnegie was for, for the commoner. Uh, Bork Cochran trained people like FDR. Uh, Winston Churchill said the single most influential person in his life was Bork Cochran. And Bork Cochran said, always, 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 Make just one point, and that's it, and drive it home. Yeah. I, we did a speaker training, uh, media training recently, where we were talking about the difference between a good speaker and a good communicator. They're not always the same thing, and the comparison was brought up between Ted Cruz and Donald Trump. Ted Cruz, you can listen to him uh, on the floor. He talks about the Constitution, and he's a very good speaker. I think he was a debate champion um, in high school or college. Uh, he was also... Um, I think the attorney general in, in Texas, although I could have that wrong, he argued in front of courts. Like he knows how to be a good speaker. But you could listen to him for an hour and not remember anything he said, right? On the other hand, Donald Trump, who many people don't see as a good speaker because he talks in circles, but you know the main messages that he's coming away from, whether you agree with them or not. Like he's communicating a message that sticks um, and that are still doubt into their essence. So, you know, sometimes just seeing someone who looks very polished doesn't mean they're also a really good communicator who will leave an impression on that audience. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I, you know what? I, I would say on the idea of like, what's the big idea, mm-hmm. right? Watch people. And if whoever you really like, and if it's political people, yeah. even the people you, you don't really like, people that are effective, right? 
I like to use Steve Jobs as an example. Steve Jobs put a ton of work into speaking. And watch him introduce a new product like the iPhone. It's a complicated technological thing that he's talking about, and yet it's crystal clear. Proverb is five words. Apple is reinventing the phone. He said reinventing over and over and over and over. And everyone who watched that talk and heard that talk knew Apple is reinventing the phone, right? When Will was at the gala, at your fire gala, right? If it's protected, we defend it, Yep. right? And that's clear. And Greg, right, it's clear. It's fight for free speech every day. Killer Mike, right, was talking about the importance of understanding your enemy. Free speech allows us to hear and understand people we disagree with. Yeah, yeah. You know, oftentimes when you're thinking about your big idea, um, you're often thinking about how you want to frame the debate. You know, you would say you want to make this debate about whether we really need all these onerous regulations surrounding a box, right? We do that at FIRE too. Like, for example, we've uh, had cases in the past on college campuses involved uh, so involving so-called security fees. Mm -hmm. These are fees that are levied. Um, by the college or university against students or student groups who want to invite a speaker to campus and who might be controversial. The idea being that uh, if you want to have Ben Shapiro on your campus, then you know the protests are going to come and we're going to need more police presence. We might even need to buy or rent barricades uh, to put around the event to avoid any sort of violence or disruption of the event. We had a case in uh, Western Michigan University involving rapper and social justice advocate Boots Riley. And he was bringing, he was being brought to campus by the Kalamazoo Peace Commission. Um, but he is a somewhat controversial speaker and they levied an excessive security fine on him, a security fee on him. And when we were thinking about how to message this, it's like, you know, people like security, right? Um, they might not know, they, they might not have any objections to a security fee. But what we're really trying to communicate is that this is a tax on controversial speech. In the United States of America, we can't discriminate based on the content of the speech. Mm -hmm. So we said, why would we adopt their terms of the debate and use security fees? Why don't we just call it a speech tax? That's what it is, Love it. right? Yeah. That's the big idea from this case is that you cannot tax speech in America. Yeah. And uh, as you said, with It's Just a Box, it made it into op-eds, it made it into news yeah. stories and headlines. And, and you know, sometimes you even do this, you create this kind of zeitgeist and this framing around issues without even intending to do it. We mentioned Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianos' book, The Coddling of the American Mind. That was not their initial title for that book, or for that originally started as an Atlantic article. Uh, it was originally supposed to be titled Disempowered. The idea is that we're like creating systems and processes and teaching kids to like become disempowered mm -hmm. and lose their agency. But as yeah, anyone... Greg wanted CBT in the title, didn't he? In the subtitle? It might have been. Yeah. Uh, it might have been. I don't remember what the subtitle would have been, but yeah. I, I remember Disempowered. That, yeah, it yeah, would have like been it. Disempowered. Um, a lot of people on the outside don't realize that when you write an article, you usually don't pick the headlines for publications like yes. the Atlantic yes. or the New York Times, or I just yeah. wrote an op-ed for the LA Times where they picked a title I wasn't happy with. <laughs> uh, and people are like fighting over the headline. I was like, that's the one thing that I didn't write for this piece. Why is that what you're debating? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, and so you can shape the terms of debate even in a, unintentionally. So coddling the American mind became a meme. It became the way you talked about what was happening on college campuses, even so going so far as like two weeks after their original article came out and it was the second most read cover story in Atlantic history, Barack Obama is on the stage saying, 
I don't think when you go to college that you should be coddled and protected from different points of view. I love it, dude. Uh, it's so like, and the Atlantic's been around for a few years. It's been around for yeah, uh, <laughs> a few, a few centuries awesome. at this point, perhaps. But that's uh, awesome. Yeah, you know, I wrote a piece called "I Did Not Kidnap Anyone," and the whole point of it was you should always set the terms of debate. Speak in a positive and solutions-oriented way. Use your your terms, not terms that frame what you're talking about in a way that you don't want it framed. And there was a classic tweet where a guy said, I did not kidnap anyone, right? Richard Nixon, I'm not a crook. (laughs) Richard Nixon, I'm not a crook. You listen to that and you you listen to Bill Clinton say, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. What's the one thing that you think about that guy doing nothing else about it? <laughs> yeah. You hear Nixon say, I'm not a crook. When you I frame didn't kill things, my wife. Yeah. yeah, when you, I don't beat my wife, right? You frame things negatively and you prime people to think the opposite, yeah. right? And so we always want to state things in a positive and solution oriented way from our perspective and think about it in advance. Yeah, so they're not thinking about security, they're thinking about taxes on yes, speech. And it's brilliant. People hate Absolutely. taxes. Right, so most people hate taxes. So Jimmy, Jimmy Carter paid extra taxes, I think. Oh, did he? <laughs> I think he would pay extra. <laughs> but yes, most people don't like taxes. Yes. Um, the last thing I want to talk about on this messaging, and I hope you do have fifteen more minutes because there's two other subjects I want to get to. We'll go as long as you want. Okay. Um, numbers. Yeah. Please help me with numbers. <laughs> right. I work in 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 an organization. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bob's holding up the book "Making Numbers Count" by Chip Heath and uh, Carla Starr. Car- Carla Starr, another book that Bob recommended to me. Um, but if you don't have a time for even this slim of a, it's like a 150 page book. Yeah. Bob has a recent Substack article out talking about numbers and how you communicate yes. numbers and how they're very they're among the most difficult thing to communicate what you say in your piece uh, how to communicate numbers is that nobody truly understands numbers so there's this one example that you use in your your subtech substack piece <laughs> yeah. that you use to cl- i think it's compare is the is how it would fit into the cut simplify and compare yeah uh, proverb um about the solar system right solar system Things are like light years away, which you might not even know what a light year is. Things are like trillions of miles away. So how do you really understand just like how far something is in the solar system, right? And you have this kind of example that you use that could simplify it for an audience. Totally. Yeah. So in this context, the number, the nearest solar system is something like 3.98764 or whatever trillion miles away, right? And so none of us understand that massive number. And so it doesn't matter if it's it you can't cut or simplify in in this case. We could simplify and say it's a, it's about 4 light years away, but we don't understand a light year. So in this case, if it's just one number, but we can't simplify it to the extent that we can really understand it, then we have to find a comparison. So the example here is imagine that you are at your high school football stadium and you walk over to one of the goalposts and you pull a quarter out of your pocket and you drop it by the goalpost and then you walk all the way across the football field to the other goalpost and you drop another quarter there. If we took our solar system and the nearest nearby solar system or we took our whole universe and shrunk it so our solar system was the size of a quarter, that's the distance away we are from the nearest solar system. Right, and that comparison is friendly to humans, right? And so numbers aren't intuitively friendly to humans. And so what we want to do is put all of our communication into a context that is audience-focused. If we're talking to a computer, we can use really big numbers. If we're talking to humans, we should cut, simplify, and compare. 
Yeah, there's we've done a little bit of that in the past in some of FIRE's work, right? So we work with college free speech zones. We don't have as many college free speech zones today in America because we've defeated most of them. But it used to be the case that one in six colleges had a free speech zone in the United States. Uh, and we would litigate some, against some of these free speech zones. And some of them were just absurd. Like, And one of the ways we would use to demonstrate the absurdity was comparing. So it's like if the college is, this, is a tennis court, right? The college or university is the size of a tennis court. The size of their free speech zone is the size of an iPhone. Or we would say that it's just 1% of the, the college campus. And 99% of the campus is not a free speech zone. Or we'd say it's the size of a parking spot. There was one unique case that we had at Texas A&M University. It's a huge school, tens of thousands of students. And we wanted to de- demonstrate the absurdity of saying the only place on campus you can exercise your free speech rights is this one gazebo that they designated. So Greg got one of his friends from MIT to do the calculation. And one of our talking points became if you want every student at Texas A&M University wanted to exercise their free speech rights at the same time, they would all need to be crushed down to the density of uranium-238. <laughs> Nobody knows what uranium-238 is, but it's like they would need to be crushed down to the size of an element, right, yeah. <laughs> in order to be uh, to exercise their free speech rights. So yeah. it's like one way of just kind of creating absurdity out of it. And so yes. comparisons are always super helpful. It's and, memorable. And, you know, in the Made to Stick book, they talk about the importance of being unexpected. Mm-hmm. And you don't expect to be talking about uranium or crushing down the student body, right? And so that helps to make it sticky. Yeah. I love it. And and so that's comparing, simplifying. You have this great example in here, and this might actually come from um, Star and Heath. Here's the, here's the sentence. 34% of white applicants and 14% of black ap- applicants without criminal records received callbacks on job applications compared to 17% and 5% with records. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's now recite it. Remember it. You know it, what? The, I, I, you know what? I, I actually went back to read this and I read it a few times and I still like, closed my eyes and I could not recite it. Yes. It's just... So you simplified it or they simplified it. To this, white job applicants with felony records are more likely to receive a callback than black job applicants with clean records. That is a gut punch. Very easy to remember, right? Yes. And much more effective uh, and, to communicate and cl- what you're trying to communicate. Yes. What's the big idea and how do you bring it to life in a way that resonates with your audience? Yeah. Cut all of the numbers and clarify the big idea. Yeah. And we already talked about simplify. You you say, you know, read these three numbers and close your eyes and try and uh Recall each out loud from memory. 3,948,583. 17 out of 33. 3.0423. And then you said, now try to do the same experiment using these numbers. 4 million, one half, and three. (laughs) Right? What is easier? So it's obvious. Yeah. Four million, one half and three. And I, I made those numbers up. And even though I wrote those numbers out and thought about them, I've never been able to actually do that. <laughs> so that's messaging, right? Yeah. And I'll, I'll just add on the compare thing. Comparisons are hard. All of this stuff is hard and it's all gotten easier. Analogies are David Hofstetler, who wrote Godel Escherbach. He calls it the fuel. I've been in, in his house before. Are you serious? <laughs> well, we have to talk about that at some point because that's amazing. Well, yeah, because he, uh, he taught at Indiana University and um, and he um, and I went to Indiana University and he had a wife who passed away who studied in a program in Bologna, Italy that I was applying for. And um, um, 
And so he created like kind of a memorial scholarship for that program for students from Indiana University who wanted to go to this Bologna full immersion language program. I was an Italian uh, Italian student. Um, and I ended up winning the scholarship. I ended Dude, up not doing the program. Awesome. But like when I won the scholarship, he invited me over and gave me this book with his signature. It wasn't a go to last year book. It was, was it uh, Surfaces and Essences? No, it was a later one. It was, I think, about something that, what was called it had, it had like crosses on the front or something i remember the one thing about the book i never got a chance to read it i probably shouldn't say that but um <laughs> i mean it was like a 500 page book and he worked with the publisher so that at the end of every page was the end of the paragraph so you never flip to a, the next page yeah. in the middle of a paragraph or in the middle of a sentence awesome. which is like very much like if you know if you know him, it's like that might be something he wanted to try and do. Yes. So anyway, I love we'll talk it. about that later. I think it was, um, it was, there was some famous writer that took the opposite approach to writing, which was, it might have been Hemingway, that um, would never finish a sentence at the end of a writing session. So when he would start back up, it would be very easy to get started because I have to finish this sentence. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Oh. But so Hofstetter talks about, he, he calls analogies the fuel and fire of thinking. He says everything that we understand, we have to connect it to something we already understand. To learn something new, we have to put it into a context that we understand. And so he says all of our thinking, whenever we discover new ideas, that process is analogical by nature. And ana analogies are so important to put into our communication, into our speaking, but they're hard. Because it's hard to come up with good analogies, right? And they want it, you want to tailor them to your specific audience. Now we have this incredible tool that's an analogy super making machine, right? And it's chat. And so before you go do a, a speech, you should absolutely toss in part of your speech and to chat and say, come up with chat GPT, yeah, in, in, or whatever LLM you want and say, come up with five analogies for me that will bring my big idea to life, right? G give them your theme, give them your proverbs, give them your stories, give chat your specific audience and say, come up with some analogies for me. And that will help you to get started. You know, that's interesting you say that because we're working on a case right now that's um, cert petition before the Supreme Court. Where cert petition is essentially you're petitioning the court to hear your case. And it involves this case uh, it involves this case that involves this independent filmmaker who made a movie in a national park. Independent filmmaker. Um, he filmed it in the national park. It was just like him and a couple people. They just set up a camera and took a couple pictures. And, and the National Park Service came after the guy. Uh, actually showed up at his place of business. And turns out um, if you are making a film and you don't get a permit and pay a fee, then you, uh, in the national park, then you could be arrested or jailed or fined. Um, and and they have all these carve outs for this this other all, all these different sorts of things that make no sense why like some people need to do it and other people don't need to do the permanent fee thing but that's neither here or there there were, the case went up to the D.C. Circuit which is an appellate court and uh, they upheld the permanent fee regime under the argument that sure the film is First Amendment protected activity but making the film shooting the film is not so they disaggregated the thing that's protected by the First Amendment from the process of making it. And we were trying to talk internally about, like, how do we communicate how absurd this is to people? And so we started thinking of some analogies. Um, it's like, you know, Henry David Thoreau could publish his poems from Walden Pond, but he couldn't write them 
next to Walden Pond, right? That's a little too heady for people. So it's like they might not know who to throw it. For a certain audience, that could be awesome. Yeah, it could. But it's more like, you know, Picasso can sell his painting, but he can't take a uh, brush to canvas to actually paint it. Or uh, Beethoven uh, could um, perform his symphony, but he can't actually write it out or something like that. So it's, you know, it's those sorts of analogies to make people see how served it is. Or outside of this, the speech context, it's like, yeah, you can eat dinner, but you can't cook it. <laughs> like they're, they're regulated in two different ways um, to demonstrate kind of the absurdity of the DC Circuit's opinion. Um, I want to close up here by talking about two final things that you like to talk with us about at FIRE, which one is delivery and one is like, okay, so you've got all these things and like, how do you refine it? How do you actually do it? Um, so one of the things you talk about with delivery is jazz over classical. Can you talk, can you explain what that means? Yes, absolutely. So the idea is in a, in classical music, everything is written, every note is written, and then folks come out and perform that piece exactly. I got to see Isak Perlman with my brother at the Kennedy Center, who's arguably the most talented violinist alive. Incredible concert, right? And the music is totally written out in advance. Now, it's a little different. When you go to a jazz concert, they've really intuited the music they're going to play, but they never play the same song twice. Because in, in a jazz performance, they take the liberty to do what feels best in the moment and to connect with people in the audience and to connect with each other on stage and to do whatever they're feeling inside and to go different riffs. And it's not in a vacuum, right? There's a particular structure that they have totally integrated. We're going to be in the key of C and we're going to move over to F and we're going to, right? So we know where we are and we're in a particular structure that makes sense, right? And we start off, it's totally ingrained. The beginning is memorized and it starts off this way and we know exactly how it's going to end and we know what this structure is. But then within the context of that structure, we bring it to life in whatever makes the most sense in that moment. You and I did not script out this conversation that we're having right now, but we've thought about it. Yeah, we've thought right? about a couple of questions we want to ask. We've we've kind of outlined it. We know the foundation of the conversation, what it's about. Yes. But we don't know which direction it's going to go. Yes. If you are a military commander and you're giving a speech and one wrong word can start a nuclear war, then write a script and stick to it. If you're not in that context, then it probably makes more sense to play jazz than to play classical music or just to show up and ramble. And so how do you play jazz? Do you write like a couple of notes on a notepad? Do you outline like the big themes you want to hit and then just talk totally. about them? Everyone should do what's best for them, mm -hmm. right? And so there's not – this isn't physics algorithms, right? This is whatever's – there's no one way to do this. There are people like Dan Kahneman from Thinking Fast and Slow that need notes in front of them. They need to be looking at stuff while they're talking. There are folks like Sam and Khan from Khan Academy – who would never write out a script in a million years. Say, I'm going to come with a couple of bullet points, I'll run a few reps, and I'm going to go talk. Right? And that's how he does his thing. And then there are other folks that write out scripts, memorize everything, and then show up, and then try to do whatever they can. I recommend, I say it doesn't matter sort of what approach you take, so long as when you show up on game day, you feel like your message is clear in your head. And when our thoughts are clear, then the words naturally flow. Paul Graham, the the great venture Why capitalist. Yeah. yeah, he's awesome. Fire supporter. But, well, <laughs> it's because he's a smart man. Right? But so he says that 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 clear writing is hard because it's downstream from clear thinking. 
right? And I would put clear speaking downstream from clear writing. And so the exact approach that you take doesn't matter, but the more we can clarify our thinking, the more the words will naturally flow, right? And that's the hard part. And so once you show up on stage, if it's a big event, you don't want to totally ramble. And so you want to say, okay, what are my proverbs? What are my big ideas? And what are the stories I'm going to use to bring them to life? And then what particular structure am I going to put these into so they can best resonate with that audience? Yeah, I gave a couple of speeches at the end of last year, one at Brown and one at Northeastern. And they were on similar topics. And going in, and Brown, I, I tailored them to each each school. Um, but Brown, I had this very detailed, like, it wasn't just outline, it was like poll quotes and facts and figures and this, that, or the other thing. And I finished the speech, I felt like it was all right. I didn't get everything in that I wanted to get in. Like, I, 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 before I knew it, my 35 minutes were up, and I was like, oh, wow, Killer Mike actually had that problem at our gala, too. But then like, I got one more minute, well, I'm going for two. Yeah, but then at Northeastern, it was the next day something had come up here and I didn't have chance to like refine my notes or anything so I and I and I had realized that kind of the outline for this type of speech that I put together was far too long than I had to deliver at Northeastern so I essentially just took my notepad and scribbled out some of the top lines that were on the notes for Brown Mm -hmm. and said okay I'm gonna hit these five points we'll see how it goes Mm -hmm. out of necessity because I just didn't have time I felt like it was one of the better speeches I had ever given. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't recorded. I know that's one thing that you always recommend <laughs> is, you know, at least just like voice memos on your phone or something so you can hear and reflect and, and improve and make progress. But uh, I, I learned that because I'm expert on this topic, I, I don't need to create an expert on the paper as well. I just need to remind myself of the things I want to talk about, maybe kind of the story I want to start with and the story I want to end with and the main themes I need to hit in between. But I learned from practice that, that's the best way I give a speech. And so I just spoke at Kenyon, and that's the way I did it. I wrote fought my five bullet points, and 40 minutes later, the speech was over. I was like, I don't need all these crutches. Like, totally. I just don't. Like, yeah. I know the issue well enough. Yep. And, and the more clarity you have on it, the less you're going to probably be bound to a script. And context matters, right? So when, let's say, Will Creeley gave, gave his remarks at, at the gala, right? He, I doubt, was spending his time reading from, from notes. He has internalized the stuff that he wants to talk about. You've internalized that. When Christina Martin argued her case before the Supreme Court on Wednesday, right, she had a two minute, you get two minutes before you before you get the Q&A, right? She had written everything out. Like, here's exactly what I want to say in this context. This is really important. And so it, it, the context matters and the individual people matter. Um, I used to write everything out for stuff that I would do. Same. And yeah. then like, you know, 10 years later, I, I thought, oh my God, like I, I could just show up and I have gone through this and thought about it and spoken about it so much that... I don't need to to be totally scripted, right? I, I did um, a talk out in California at some like fancy high school prep school, and they did one of the TEDx things, and I was one of the TEDx speakers. And you know, with TED, you got to be very refined and yeah. kind of work on things and distill them down. And um, I ended up writing out a, I think it was like fifteen minute speech and memorizing word for word, more or less. But when I got up there to do it first 10 minutes go by great in the first 10 minutes i'm kind of like laying out the argument before i'm getting to like the big point that i want people to come out with and there was like a connection sentence or two mm-hmm. that like my whole speech kind of hinged on to transform from like the laying out the problem to like the solution yeah. and i for- just forgot it yeah. um it's not like i forgot it in the 
moment. I don't even, I can't even really explain what happened, but I wasn't, the, the point is I wasn't really thinking about the speech. I was just going through the motions because I had memorized it. And if I played jazz, I would have known that because I was active and I was like participating in the speech rather than just like going through the motions, I would have realized that I didn't make that connection. I don't would and I would have made it like, and, and so from that point on, I decided I was never going to memorize a speech because I need to be present in the speech and I need to real and I need to connect with the audience and I need to understand how my argument is going, not just with them, but for me as well. Am I connecting A to B to C to D? Totally. Um, yeah. Like what we say to our clients is you, ha- however you want to do it, you have to push through the uncanny valley. And what that is, is where, when we normally talk, like we're talking now, we're talking in a way that brings our personalities out. That's authentic. The problem with talking informally is we tend to ramble. Right. And so the beauty of a structured speech is that we can add clarity and without the rambling. Right. And so when people start to do that, they go into what I call the uncanny valley where they become eloquent, but they sound unnatural. And then most people back out. But what you have to do is push through and pop out on the other side where you could become authentic and eloquent. Yeah. And that's the goal. Yeah. And one of the ways you get to that goal is practice, right? And yes. You guys are so big on practice. <laughs> of course. And and, and learn, listening to what you have done. Like, so I say, I forgot to put the voice memo. I was like, ah, yeah, Bob Ewing's in my ear. I should have done the voice memo because I thought that was a good speech. Like, let's listen back. What did you like about it? What made it good? And then also soliciting feedback, right? Yes from people honestly um, not just negative feedback on what can be improved but what did you do well so you can lean into that in the future yes. so um, I don't know that there's any extra point on that I think people understand intuitively that like that's an important step in the process yes but no most people don't do it right like it, it should be absolutely it's part of the presentation there's a saying in rock climbing that when you get to the top you're only halfway there right in all growth happens in the stretch zone. And if we want to get better at stuff, we have to iterate based on feedback. There's a great quote from Naval Ravikant. He says, it's not 10,000 hours that leads to excellence. It's 10,000 iterations. That's how all progress happens in our universe. That's natural selection. That's why markets work. That's how engineers build stuff. That's how science works. And that's how skill development works is we iterate based on feedback. And so if you say from now to the moment that you're going on stage, it's not about logging as many hours as you can. It's about getting as many iterations as you can. Like that's what you need to do. And the better your iterations come, the better your feedback is, right? And so feedback from self, feedback from others, feedback from the world around us, iterate, iterate, iterate. Yeah, and you can build things into your presentations and into how you assess them so that you can generate good feedback as a result. You can go to someone in the audience and say, hey, can you take some notes on what you think's working and not working here as you're listening? Or you can turn on your voice memos. Um, you know, as you said, this is how they do it in engineering, right? When the starship blows up in space, like that's a learning opportunity. How do we, you know, what, how do we iterate on top of this next time? So maybe it gets higher or maybe who knows it gets to orbit and it's successful or we don't blow up the launch pad, you know? Yes. And most people do not give good feedback. We tend to be assholes to ourselves, and we tend to be really kind to others in front of them. And then when we go in private, we tend to tell ourselves we did better than we did. And we tend to be critical of others. Good feedback is honest. It's specific and it's compassionate. And so we say to ourselves, what specifically did I do well? And what specifically can I do to take it to the next level? And we do the same thing for our colleagues. And the better we can get at that, the quicker we grow. So way of closing here, are there any speakers that you admire who you, you're constantly coming back to and saying, yeah, this, this person knew how to get a message across? Sure, yeah. 
As a general rule, I recommend to people to look at the best entrepreneurs and the best stand-up comedians that really resonate with them. I think those genres in general produce the best public speakers. Can I also just say, I, sure. did, a, I did a stand-up comedy class at the Comedy Cellar <laughs> nice when I was living in New York City, and I work in the communication space, and the best writing training that I've ever gotten was taking that class and learning how to write a stand-up comedy joke. I mean, the, really, the, the 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 setup and punchline, I mean, just generating that and condensing your joke down so you get as many laughs per minute as possible. Like, it, you're just forced to kind of remove all the bullshit and all the throat clearing to get down to your core message and the stuff that's really going to resonate with your audience. Because you you have feedback from your audience immediately. They either laugh or they don't, yes, right? Yes, and, and you start that's to figure out what feedback. your message is. That's yes. the universe giving you genuine feedback. It is. So I, I, would, I would just, I guess, say... Yes, and, you know, exactly. look at stand-up comedy and maybe try it yourself, just writing some jokes. Yes. Yeah. Well, speaking is a skill. We get better at it by doing it, yes. right? And so, and so you don't get better at speaking by reading books. You get better by going out and doing it totally. and then getting feedback. If I had to pick top public speaking guru or someone that resonates with me the most, I would say I'd like to go back in history and say, like, who are the best speakers of all time and read their speeches? William Sapphire has compiled – hundreds of the best speeches ever. And if I had to pick one person, I would say you and Killer Mike were just talking about Frederick Douglass, yeah. one of the great icons of free speech and the great advocates of free speech. And you talked about his Boston speech. The, the piece that resonates the most with me, with Douglass, is actually something that he wrote. In 10 years after he escaped slavery, he wrote a letter to his former slave master, Thomas Ald. And by background, Thomas Ald was someone that he said made him feel like degraded chattel and made him tremble. Whenever Frederick heard Thomas's voice, he would tremble. And Douglas was a big, strong guy. And at one point, he he tied Frederick's cousin Henny, a poor or small crippled girl, to a post and beat her until she passed out and bled. And hours later, he came back and beat her again, right? So you can imagine the context in which Douglas is writing this letter 10 years after he escaped. He writes this letter. And I like to say to people, if you were Frederick Douglas, what would you put in that letter? <coughs> you should absolutely, everyone should read it. And this is basically how, well, first he brings it to life with stories from his life. And that's what we should do. The letter's full of stories from his life. And this is how he ends it. He says that, he says, Thomas, you are always welcome in my house. There is no roof under which you should you would feel more safe than mine. And there's nothing in my house that if it would aid in your comfort, I would not readily provide you. And then he says, <clears throat> sorry, <coughs> he says, I would esteem it a privilege to show you how human beings ought to treat one another, <clears throat> right? And when I read that, I'm like, oh my God, like that's it, right? Because mm -hmm. like if, if he can transcend outrage, then certainly we can, mm -hmm. right? And, and like righteous indignation, and we see this so much on social media because it primes us to engage in system one anger, right? And so if we can pull back and say, okay, I'm going to try to think through what I'm going to say, or maybe I have to write out everything. Like I have to write one Substack piece a week instead of write a hundred tweets that are angry. I have to have one thoughtful piece, right? that's a huge deal. <clears throat> and um, the thing with Douglas is he's showing us with clarity and compassion the correct path forward. But he's making it impactful, right? 
by laying out all the atrocities at the beginning. Right? Yes. Yes. Uh, so like you, un- so if the punchline and it's, it's hard to even use that, <coughs> that, that phrase in the context of such a visceral and terrifying letter. Um, but if the punchline is, you know, my home, I'm going to offer you all the comforts of my home. Nobody would be a more welcome guest than you in it. Like if you want that to really resonate with people and to understand that, like, this is the way we defeat the, uh, you know, hatred in our world you begin by demonstrating all the examples of hatred that this person uh laid upon you in their life and then it's like this it's like it's like this misdirection it's like you're expecting as most like reasonable humans would that they that frederick Douglass is going to lash out him and use the opportunity to get revenge but then he doesn't and that's what makes it so powerful right is he does the kind of sort of christ-like thing and grant almost forgiveness Yes. at the end. Yeah, yeah, that showing with clarity and compassion the correct path forward. Like, that's it. And it doesn't matter how people treat us. We always have the freedom to choose how we communicate and how we speak. Yeah. And how we speak matters. Yeah. Well, Bob, I think that's a good place to leave it. I uh, really enjoyed this conversation. As I said, I mean, much of what we do here at FIRE is, was inspired in part by kind of the lessons you gave to me in my, early in my career. So I want to thank you for that. Um, and it, I just urge any of our listeners who are looking for help in developing their message or their public speaking to, to get in touch with you and Mary Rose and your colleagues over at the Ewing School. Now, what's the URL for that? TheEwingSchool.com and EwingSchool.com. Yeah, so you own both of them. Very good. <laughs> um, uh, you're, of course, the founder and president over at the Ewing School, and we've just um, had such a – it's been such an honor and a privilege to get to work with you and Mary Rose and your team um, in developing some of our speeches here at FIRE, including the gala speeches that you mentioned before. Greg and Will both worked uh, with you and your team in developing those. So, Bob, thanks for coming on the show, and uh, hopefully we can do it again sometime soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, recorded by my colleague, Tyler McQueen, and edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese and Ella Ross. To learn more about So To Speak, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, which will be linked here in the show notes. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, uh, and Twitter uh, under the handle Free Speech Talk. You can also like us at Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We take email feedback at so to speak at the fire.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Reviews do help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, thank you all for listening. <laughs>